Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we are talking about Mank, the 2020 film directed by David Fincher, screenplay by Jack Fincher. I'm joined by the Lesson from Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. And we are, of course, talking to you um, from a theater where we're playing back the audio that we recorded. Um, we recorded it in a theater to make sure there was actual, honest reverb to recreate the sound of the 1930s, because uh, we know that's how people like to listen to their podcast. Um, so might have to explain that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. We'll get to that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Mank, lots of different things. Uh, so there's all the technical details that went into creating this film and making it look and sound like a 1930s, 40s uh, picture. In some ways. In in some ways and not other ways. The the juggling (laughs) of modern and old is interesting. We can talk about that, Uh, which also just opens up tons of Fincher things and where this sits in the Fincher filmography and how one feels about the Fincher filmmaking that happens. Uh, And then just generally talking about characters and themes and performances, all of which are interesting. And there's a lot to discuss. Bill Nye is in this movie. Also, (laughs) That was so crazy. When it cut to the close up of, or not close up, but like medium shot of Upton Sinclair. It's like, that's definitely Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, we love our midpoint revelations and the midpoint of this movie is the revelation (laughs) that Bill Nye is in this movie. He's Upton Sinclair of all people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which I kind of love. Me too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good casting. I mean, there's just so much style stuff happening constantly everywhere in this movie from the opening titles, which were kind of giving me sort of a panic room mm-hmm. vibe. Totally. Or, you know, panic room opens with that title sequence where there's a bunch of huge, you know, typeface, all the, the cast and the credits are there in serif font looming over New York City in three dimensions for some reason. Uh, And so that was kind of like the first opening statement of this, like, it's old, but it's also clearly not old. And then there's, you know, the cinematographer next to his name. It says, like, you know, filmed in HDR or in high dynamic range. So it's like... Yeah, with the the little logo that looks like, you know, Cinemascope or something. Yeah. So, yeah. So there are a ton of these things that the cigarette burns for the changeover markers for the reels that are there for funsies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you guys what of these things worked, what didn't work, um, and... Yeah, just what your, your what your impression was of this kind of Fincher version of an old movie. Alex, I'm curious to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the cinematography was gorgeous. I really, I do love how this film looks. I kind of wish, so my personal taste is like the Alfonso Cuaron approach with Roma, where mm-hmm. he engaged in this kind of like classical filmmaking you know really embracing what you can do with a black and white palette and yet he also embraced that he was using modern technology and didn't like downgrade it he didn't downgrade his sound mix to a mono mix or rough up his digital image to make it look like film with the burn marks and all that stuff i get why fincher did all those things for this film i i think he had it in mind that this he said in an interview, almost wanted to feel like it came out concurrently with Citizen Kane, like of that time, which also, yeah, it doesn't make sense because it also it looks, <laughs> it also looks modern in a lot of ways. Right. I get why he did it. I personally, I think would have 
enjoyed the movie more and actually understood the movie more on the first viewing without subtitles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you had given us a clean, you know, 5.1 sound mix and and used the mix to do more, you know, and didn't make it all mm-hmm. kind of mushed down into that mono, like old school format where I listened to it on headphones and like there actually are like there's crackles and the audio kind of almost like distorts sometimes like things that just don't aren't allowed now, you know, in Mm -hmm. a modern movie mix were intentionally done uh, for the sound mix. So, so yeah, I, on the one hand, I really love the atmosphere and the kind of mood that the movie puts me in. And there's, there's something about once I'm in this movie long enough, there is a magic to the way it's shot and there's a magic to the way it feels that kind of sweeps over me. So I, it, it works. Whatever he did, kind of, it works on some level, which is not my taste, not my approach personally. I, I would have liked him to embrace the old and the new in more of a blend than but he leaned more towards, we're going to rough it up, make it look old. It's interesting what you're saying, Alex, because that's kind of what I was feeling too, where there's this tension where it feels like the movie is pulling in two directions, where it feels like it's pulling you to buy into some of this like old timey conceit of like creating what this is how movies used to look. Right. But in other ways, it's very obviously signaling the opposite. And and I think that that to me, I was kind of like, so wait, we're, we're not taking this seriously or we are taking it seriously in terms of what we're trying to project, I guess, thematically, which we can get to, you know, a lot later. But all of the visual elements, you know, in theory, fit together with all of the narrative elements in, in a theme or like, you know, into a like thematic sort of cohesion. And the tension here, I, I just found to be like a little bit perplexing where, you know, the idea you could have shot it in 4.3. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is how it would have looked if it had actually been made in the 30s. But instead, you shot it in the widescreen format that didn't exist until the 50s. And so, like, that's an interesting choice. I mean, then obviously a very conscious choice on Fincher's part. They're playful and they're kind of fun. But I really didn't think that the slug lines on the screen worked for me because mm. those are digital. Mm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way that they're put into the movie, the same with the cigarette burns, like, you're using digital technology to reference older technology rather than actually utilizing older technology in some ways. And then on the other hand, what we're talking about with the sound mix, you're actually making a sit through <laughs> something that, you know, that we now have the technology to to do in a different way, as you're pointing out, Alex. So I, I found that to be just like a really interesting experience of watching it where it was a little bit hard to find your footing in it just from a technical perspective. Yeah, I, I I feel like it was it was interesting to see which things he chose to mm-hmm. do, which things he wanted to put. So I, I was surprised to see the grainy footage. I was surprised to see the cigarette burns. I think for me, the titles, the slug lines did work just to help orient you well, and the sure, story yeah. they felt necessary what would you do yeah. without them <laughs> fair fair right exactly i think i think those served that purpose while watching it i was like okay well this is there's a maybe a grab bag of tricks and these are the ones he pulled out and some of these work for me and some of these don't and that's just kind of an, an interesting thing for me you know as a fincher fan as i've talked about before i think the side effect of 
him going for this roughed up version is that this movie felt like it had the most life in it of his films Hmm. in a very long Hmm. time for Mm -hmm. me. And even our editor, Eric Schneider, I was chatting with him about it and he brought that up as when he heard that we were going to be talking about it, that it it felt alive in ways that his films don't normally. And that was kind of how I felt also because there's, you know, social network is, is cool and good, but I feel like a lot of the things social network and afterwards are so clean and so precise in all the ways and the performances and the camera movement and everything that there's the coldness yeah i think yeah. coldness is, is a good way to put definitely it. yeah that that's that was my issue with girl with the dragon tattoo was i felt like the movie should feel like seven i felt like it should mm-hmm. feel gritty and you know and you say coldness like that movie should feel cold um <laughs> mm-hmm. you know very literally but but I just sort of felt like I like I appreciate this movie so much and I enjoy watching it and, and I like it. But there is sort of a distance, I feel, because of that sort of coldness and very technical thing to it, especially when like the trailers were very gritty and like heavy and, you know, the feel bad movie this summer. And like you and you even open with that with Karen O and, uh, you know, doing like the Led Zeppelin cover and everything. It feels like this is going to be the music video movie of your lifetime and then it goes into this very <laughs> cold like like sort of distant kind of feeling thing and yeah i agree that mank had had a nice life to it a really cool pacing it sort of had a uh his girl friday feel to me mm-hmm. which i that assume was the movie Trisha, i thought seen. of too yeah really yeah <laughs> yeah because I, I watched that with two friends and uh like 10 years ago or something and i was like how are we watching a movie that's 80 years old and we feel like we exactly. can't keep up with it like it's mm-hmm. so <laughs> boom 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 um and the uh the writer's room meeting uh like when they when they Perfect go in example just, of that yeah, yeah it just felt yeah. like oh and it's the kind of movie where you never feel like you're you're settled in a way that it's trying for i i agree with you guys like i sort of always want to see if you're going to try to do this authentic thing, then do the authentic thing. Like, let's see the aspect ratio, go find a camera from this era and shoot the movie on that and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I also don't know how, if that would be like super distracting. And I think it would also be super distracting if this movie was made to look like a 2020 movie. So I feel like it's maybe just a choice to go somewhere in the middle. And I agree with you, Alex, like once you're sort of settled into it, it has a magic to it. Uh, I found myself intellectually going why would they do this why would they do this aspect ratio like why not even do 185 instead of instead of like wide wide screen like at the very mm-hmm. least do something that feels boxy Closer. to us today but once i stopped caring about that and just settled into the movie it, it's definitely one of the closest i felt to a movie that was trying to to bring about a different era you know you think of um Good Night and Good Luck, the Clooney movie, or the Good German, the Soderbergh movie, where they do the like black and white. We are we're trying to make you pretend that you are in this era, and they they both do a pretty good job of it. Uh, but this one, I think, was the closest I've gotten to a movie really making me feel like I was sort of seeing a, a little bit of a of a time machine thing. But because it didn't really go all the way, it kept it it kept it from quite feeling, you know, like that was really what I was experiencing. Mm. I think what I what I'm appreciating right now is what Michael pointed out, which is the the warmth. Like if if, if his other mm-hmm. movies feel cold, this movie does have a genuine warmth to it mm-hmm. at times that I think maybe wouldn't be there if he had done the Roma approach, where it's like a clean black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so there's, that's interesting because I I appreciated the warmth of the film and the warmth I felt towards Make eventually. I think that there's something there, and I do think also what we're kind of identifying here is that he didn't try to make it look like it was actually a movie made in right. 1941. 
And he also didn't try to make it look like a movie that was made in 2020 necessarily. It's almost like you're kind of just in on it. Like, like there's no pulling the wool over your eyes of like, this is an old movie, actually. It's like everybody's in on it. And we're kind of here as film nerds or it's, it's like kind of meant for film nerds to appreciate the fact that when the scene fades out, the way it fades out <laughs> looks like right. an old movie where like the windows go last, you know, like it's, so there's right. there's something about it that's kind of almost just more like an act of nerdy love more than like trying to create a cohesive, like get lost in this illusion. It's more of like, look at the nerd film things, fellow film nerds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another movie that it also doesn't look like is Citizen Kane, actually. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of appreciate because Citizen Kane has, I mean, there are some obviously visual homages that are are really present here to Citizen Kane. You know, the the depth of field is there and all the of that bottle stuff. instead of the snow yeah. globe. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. The, the, the most, really obvious the one. The most clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of those things are there. But what you're pointing out, Alex, is absolutely right, which is that, you know, it doesn't have this sort of sharpness or coldness in the black and white. It's not like a Greg Toland, you know, style of black and white. And it is this like glowy <laughs> sort of mm-hmm, um, nostalgic mm-hmm. like look to the black and white. And I actually really appreciate that because it signals to us something that we don't actually realize. It signals to us early on something that we don't realize until the end, which is that this is a not about. First of all, it's not about Citizen Kane that much, <laughs> but also it's not about the same kind of a person. So like. Citizen Kane is a biography of a certain kind of person who is very cold, very sharp, very ruthless. And actually, Mank is also a biography, but it's about a completely different kind of person who goes on a completely different kind of journey than than Kane does. And, you know, William Randolph Hearst, obviously, by extension. So which we could get to the movie's plot, which does meander a little bit. You it's nice to have the visual signal right at the outset that actually you are going to experience something different. Don't settle in for a Citizen Kane, like archetypal story, because that's not what this Mm -hmm. is. Like you're saying, it's it's black and white, but it's not noir. Like it's right. You know, you could turn other Fincher films, turn the saturation down, and it's going to look more like a film noir from that time. Mm -hmm. era. So it's not trying to be, I think, what a lot of people think of black and white as being. But just at one point, all movies had to be in black and white and sometimes you had to shoot in the daytime and there weren't harsh shadows and like things were just gray and like it was about the the different levels of gray that gave that that warmth and stuff and so I, it was cool to see that approach and not just i'm gonna not just fincher saying i'm gonna do seven but now it's in black and white right right exactly This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by Mubi, the curated streaming service that premieres a new film every day. So I love discovering new movies that I've never seen before, but I also love discovering movies from filmmakers that I'm a little bit familiar with, and I can do a deep dive into more of their filmography. The movie curators have a great way of putting together sort of packages on different filmmakers. And right now they have several films by the Korean filmmaker, Hong Sang-soo. He does like these sensitive dramas. Alex, I think you'd really like them. And they have a couple new movies that are also coming out by the same filmmaker. So in a couple of days, they're having Claire's Camera, which is one of his films that I've seen that's gonna be on movie. It stars Isabelle Huppert, and a wonderful Korean actress, Kim Min-hee, who she's so lovely and just I'd watch her do anything, basically. 
So Claire's camera is going to be on Mubi really soon. And then Yourself and Yours, which is another Hong Sang Soo movie, is also coming to Mubi. Why'd you single out Alex? I like, I like sensitive dramas and crap. I'm like, I'm like totally into sensitive stuff. And so where can people go to sign up for movie? I'm so glad you asked, Michael. Uh, they can go to MUBI.com slash beyond the screenplay. Each film on movie is handpicked. There's no algorithm. And it's an amazingly eclectic selection of films from all over the world and from every time period, from old classics to new releases. A lot of these movies by Hong Sang-soo are actually from recent years. If you ever want to step outside your particular bubble of film knowledge, movie is the perfect place to get started. It's again at MUBI com slash beyond the screenplay and thanks to movie for sponsoring our show i'm gonna go watch some sensitive dramas on movie yeah sensitive korean dramas they're, they're really beautiful but the one thing rewatching citizen kane last week uh in preparation for mank like that movie is gorgeous like, uh-huh. the cinematography in that movie is yeah. so 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 stunning i think that was kind of the main carryover to mank and it doesn't it's not the same, like, look at that giant door with this small person in it. It wasn't that kind of, <laughs> right, like, right. we're sort of making paintings, but it was just that attention to detail and feeling like every shot was sort of was sort of something you could, you wanted to gobble up, you know? And uh, so I appreciated that. I, I was sort of surprised that it wasn't more of a Citizen, a movie about Citizen Kane. And that might be part of the trailer's fault because it was so, like, it's Orson yep. Welles. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. The bottle instead of the, the, the snow globe, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, I have to watch Citizen Kane. And then watching it, I'm like, are we is this movie about Citizen Kane at all? No, it's not. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, but there is also this meta aspect to the story, if we want to start getting into the story, where, as you said, Tricia, like Citizen Kane is a sort of faux biography about this quote-unquote fictional person who is very obviously this real person or based on this real person. And then Mank is a biography about this person, <laughs> which is not all factual and stuff. Yep. But then meanwhile we have the slug lines as as settings and stuff where it's like we the viewer are sort of being told we are being shown a movie which is maybe part of the right. the design choice of shooting a modern version of a classic movie like we're going to shoot in this yeah. aspect ratio and digital but with this 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 and this and then i i sort of felt the first time i watched the movie i felt disoriented like i just sort of felt where where are we? What are we working towards? Kind of like right around the second <laughs> half, I just started to go, what what is the end goal? To you this started movie? to wonder what anybody's mm-hmm. goals were. I wondered that a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then and then I appreciated. Uh, well, first of all, so watching it a second time was just very enjoyable because I was able to just appreciate each individual segment of the movie like any five minutes is just like really enjoyable but when you paste it all together it's a little like where is this going but then there's this scene where uh with i think hausman where mank is saying like this is not a linear story leading to a clear way out it's it's a cinnamon roll that kind of spirals to a center uh Mm -hmm. and he says you cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours all you can hope is to give us is the impression of one so Mm -hmm. i started to feel like okay i may not like it but i appreciate that that is very purposefully what this movie is doing structurally is we are showing these like sort of three-ish time periods in Mank's life and we're showing them throughout the movie sort of christopher nolan style and because that's kind that is what citizen kane does so again it's sort of this like zooming out meta thing that i think the movie is trying to do and i don't know that i like all of it but i appreciate that that's pretty clearly what it was going for Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, for me, I also had to kind of revisit the movie a second time to even kind of make sense of the first half. 
Um, mm-hmm. Really, where the movie, where I get engaged with the movie and where I really started loving it was in the second half, because that's where I feel like I can finally really connect with Mank as a protagonist. I know what he cares about. I know like what's weighing on him as far as the political consequences of what he's doing and what mm-hmm. MGM is doing. And you know, when the politics come into it, that's when I'm really engaged with the film. Like I actually am not as into the Hollywood minutiae and all the players at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to learn about the politics of the time and how Hearst and MGM were all wrapped up in that and how I love that if they're going to do an origin story for Citizen Kane and why that script came to be, that we're going to get this like bigger historical context around that moment in time what was happening and why this man in particular would want to write this kind of almost satire takedown of Hearst. So so once it got into the into that more deeply and when I when I really felt like I knew Mank as somebody who cared about things and was, you know, he had values and he had something he wanted to prove. Like that's where I really got engaged with the movie. There's a there's a meandering feeling in the first several scenes for me where you know when we go to the writer's room early on in the film like i'm not particularly charmed by this writer's room i'm not like into these characters i'm not sure. really like mm-hmm. into any of this you know and so it, i don't care and, and 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 so it's an interesting film where like i basically don't really care about anybody for a while and then eventually i really care and i really am into the story and i really like want to see what happens with the election with what's man going to do? I'm really moved by the story of his like, you know, director friend who took the job, you know, and then offs himself. Mm -hmm. So all those stories are really compelling, but it takes half a movie to get there. So, so for me, my, my experience of the story is really split. It's like the first half I'm very not into. And the second half I loved. So it's a movie that when, by the time it ends, I really love it. Every time I started from the beginning, I'm really not into it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very mixed bag. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I have like a couple of thoughts on that. I think I that is generally what was my experience also. I think I enjoyed more of the first half than you did, it sounds like, because I, I do, I think, instilled from my father, I do have a curiosity about old-timey Hollywood stuff and like what it was like at the studios and the studio system. And so even if I don't like the people in the writer's room, it's fun to see like a portrayal of what it was like pitching to the studio execs back in the day where they're just making it up and riffing and then kind of hazing the new guy. The studio politics of that I do find interesting. And I think Amanda Seyfried's character is very charming. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there are things along the way in the first half that worked for me, but it was more like, you know, this sequence I'm really connected to, like following Mayer as he marches through MGM to go give his speech to all of his employees where he's going to cut all of their salaries like that sequence I'm really into mm-hmm. and I'm into the dinner scene where you know they're all at the Hearst mansion and talking about politics and That's a Hitler great and all yeah. the, like all that and then they go on the walk and I'm like well I, I am interested in this but I don't feel like I'm being told a story at this moment I feel right. like I'm just kind of that walk is rough yeah yeah like and it, it's <laughs> gorgeous and i think it's well performed and all these things but it is lacking that momentum and to kind of zoom back and put on my like fincher historian slash obsessive nerd hat (laughs) (laughs) so i think i've mentioned on the podcast before in one of the girl with dragon tattoo making of featurettes he's talking about editing or the, the editors are 
talking about editing and there was the the sort of as you're building to the finale of the girl with dragon tattoo they're kind of putting all the pieces together and lisbeth is drawing lines from this place to that place and oh the killer must have been in this place and that place and in an early cut it was really long and it was hard to follow because you're trying very hard to show the audience okay well this is the name of the city he was here do you get it now we move here and it was too much to like hold like even if you go that slowly it's still too much and so the approach was like never mind people following it let's just go through it as quickly as possible and make it clear that the characters know what's going on and the audience doesn't need to know the details of all that. And I think in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think that works. But I think there are other moments in Fincher's filmography where it does feel like there's a a lack of confidence, I want to say, and that spending, like letting a scene just sit and happen at a slower pace so that the audience can follow all the words that instead of doing that, there's this like rush through it, like we're going to go and just zoom past it. And we're going to, you know, the opening sequence of the social network is that where it's people <laughs> right. talking quickly and half the people don't know what the hell happened. And I think that's fine with Fincher or with Sorkin because there's a lot of talking. And if I kind of felt that way in Gone Girl, too, where like it feels like you're just kind of dropped in the movie and it's going and I feel like I'm supposed to know stuff that I don't yet. And eventually... I've accumulated enough that I'm like in the story. And I felt that a little bit with Mank too, where it was like, it felt like there was important exposition happening and characters that I needed to meet and know, but it was being rushed through so efficiently that I wasn't getting clear signals of what I should be paying attention to and why it was going to be important. And that's what happened the second time around. It's like, oh, I did meet that character right. earlier. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, I, okay, now I can see why. I didn't catch his name. So when they talked about him later, I had no <laughs> idea who they're talking about. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I've, I feel like that's just kind of a, a, a Fincher thing that I've noticed that I think in certain contexts works well. But I think in contexts like this actually hurt the experience of the movie. Because again, by the end of the movie, I was really into it and really loved it. And I was thinking like, oh, this movie is great. Why didn't I know it was great in the first half? <laughs> like what? <laughs> right. What is the disconnect happening there? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting push-pull thing there because I have far more tolerance for a movie that it takes me two viewings to appreciate than a movie I'm done appreciating halfway through. Yeah. You've said this before. and Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like how many movies, you know what I mean? How many movies are you just like, I get it. Like, can we just get to the credits now? Like, I've <laughs> yeah, seen everything. Just finish it. Yeah. And and I think Coen Brothers and Fincher and Danny Boyle, like some of my favorite, David Lynch, like, of course, like, I don't even know what's going on the first time I see the movie. And like, yeah. I don't want too much of that. I don't want to just feel like miserable the first time I watch a movie. But if I'm entertained the first time and then it takes me two or three viewings to to start to unwrap it and start to appreciate it, that's cool. I'm OK with that. Not saying Mank is the perfect balance by any means, but. It, it is. It was a movie where as soon as it was done, I said, I want to watch it again. And my girlfriend said, well, it's a little late. I said, not right now. <laughs> Just mean in the next few days. <laughs> For me, enough comes together in the second half really mm. s- in a really satisfying way that it made up for the first half for me in the sense that like my total experience of the movie was a positive one and it paid off even if I didn't quite follow what was going on in those first several scenes. It's an interesting problem here because... I, you know, would I would never imply or insinuate that David Fincher didn't make exactly every single choice that he wanted to make. 
Mm-hmm. And so that every <laughs> every frame of this movie was meticulously selected and is is here on purpose, right? Mm. No mistakes were made <laughs> going going right. on here. Not by David Fincher. That doesn't not happen. Not by David Fincher. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> but I will say that there's we as an audience we tend to have a lower tolerance for like um, diffuse filmmaking, if I can put it that way, which is how the first half of this feels right it's exactly what you were describing michael where we want to be told what's important we want our attention to be directed by the selection of scenes and also by what is in a scene to what is important for a plot or a character arc or a theme we want to be told what we're looking at essentially you know it's interesting when you think about fincher as the maker of thrillers thrillers are the perfect example of you know we have detectives who don't know what's important. They're just collecting information. And then eventually the pieces come together and they're able to kind of see the way that things relate, but not until the end. The thing is, the tradition of American thrillers and American crime has very little fat on it, where like when a detective finds a clue, <laughs> the clue is important. Right. There's very little chance when you're watching an American crime thriller that that clue is not important unless it's very specifically some kind of dead end. Right. Like, but even so, it's like consequential and important in some way. Right. Where a more European and particularly a more Scandinavian like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which comes from that tradition, that tradition of crime thriller is diffuse where there often are sort of unimportant things that happen. And they may or may not have any relevance whatsoever. They're not even really dead dead ends or, or red herrings. They're just kind of in there. And I almost see Mank in that sort of vein of like, if you can hmm. think of it in a little bit of a crime throw away, which it isn't. But like, <laughs> and I do think that there's potentially a thematic reason for it. But I can kind of see that in the first half of this where there's stuff in there that truly isn't important. There mm-hmm. is in terms of like, plot like what we traditionally think of from an american perspective as plot or character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there just is a bunch of other stuff in there <laughs> there's characters there's lines there's stuff that ultimately like doesn't impede like if you don't have it you're not going to be like missing something critical for where the movie ultimately ends up and so we as an american audience kind of like Ugh. We don't like it because it's not what we're used to in terms of having our attention directed. And I think that that was all of our experiences, it sounds like, (laughs) watching the movie the first time around, where sitting through the first half, you're kind of in that space where you're just like, what the hell am I watching? Like, what is this ultimately going to sort of be about? And and I I agree that the movie sharpens its focus as it goes along um, in a way that I think maybe ultimately justifies the first half. I don't know if it makes me like the first half anymore, but obviously, again, I think there's something very deliberate going on. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of this meta conversation and, and you know, we don't it'd be easy to just keep talking about David Fincher for forever. We should talk <laughs> about the movie too, but right. That, you know, thinking <laughs> about, you know, the, the videos that I made about five act structure and the girl with the dragon tattoo and his thoughts on being lassoed and hogtied by three acts. Like, I feel mm. like there's yeah. a certain amount of like, it's not that he can't make those kinds of movies because he has, but mm-hmm. I feel like there's a he. It's he's. It seems like he's less concerned with the perfect package movie experience now, and so I think I find that intellectually compelling, but not always emotionally engrossing. And I think in this case there was enough 
just, you know, because of the context around the story at play, I was interested when it was like, oh, that's Charles Dance. He's playing like William Randolph Hearst. Like, I know that's going to be important because mm-hmm. I know history, but right. nowhere in the movie do we know like who he like there's just there's a lot of things <laughs> like that where it's great example. it's fun if you know but if you don't know when she calls him pops so if you didn't like know that she was his mistress you'd be like his daughter like right. what's, yeah what's happening yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I had the experience where i went to hearst castle for the first time last year mm-hmm. um, and Me did too. the tour really mm-hmm. yeah uh and you know you do the tour they tell you about all the parties he had and who you would invite and all that kind of stuff i also weirdly used to live by the department store where he runs into his, his friend cc for the second time mm-hmm. <laughs> like koreatown of all places and uh and then i watched citizen kane again last week so it's like i felt very primed to watch mank i was like oh okay they're at Hearst Castle. I've been there. I I know that doorway. You know, I know that that big long table, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I just watched Citizen Kane. So I know what they're talking about when they're talking about like an old man in a wheelchair, da da da. But I don't think you should have to do hours of research in order to enjoy a movie. And I'd be fascinated to hear the experience of somebody watching Mank who had mm-hmm. absolutely no contact, like has heard of Citizen Kane, because how could you not? But like, that's where it stops. And they have no other context. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of mandatory viewing, honestly. Like, I, I don't know how this movie would play if you didn't have any context for Citizen Kane or what that movie represents and what it is and what it's about. But at the same time, I feel like if you actually know too much about it, like if you are kind of a film nerd or historian or whatever. So I've actually written a couple of movies set in this era in old Hollywood, like 30s mm-hmm. Hollywood, where like even the tertiary characters who get name dropped off screen are is like somebody that I kind of know who they are and and have heard of them. And like Irving Thalberg, who, you know, if you're a movie nerd, you know all about Irving Thalberg and who he was and and the old studio system that he was a part of and like how he died, which this movie doesn't con- concern itself with really telling you anything about. But if you don't know that, so then A, I assume you're having the experience that we're talking about here where it's just like uh, feeling lost, feeling like it's kind of just flashing by you. If you know too much about it at the same time, you're just like, well, yeah, of course, Louis B. Mayer is going to like act like that, you know, kind of. There's a little bit of an obviousness if you know too much about it, I think, in some ways that is also not <laughs> also not the thing. So I don't know what the amount of knowledge is that creates like an optimum viewing experience for this movie. That's another question I have. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Just really quick before we get too far away from it, in the mm-hmm. Michael, you were mentioning about Fincher the the like lasso and hogtied by three act structure. Mm-hmm. I found another quote from him where he talked about he hates signposting in movies. Like he hates when he knows where the act break is happening. And he says mm. he feels like there's this Pavlovian dog thing being done to him of like, here's where we are. He wants to be lost in the story. He doesn't want to be, you know, be signaled constantly about mm-hmm. like where you are. So he he does very like specifically have a problem with movies that show him where he is. 
Like he wants to be lost <laughs> in the woods. And so, so that may, it makes sense that the first half of this movie, you don't know where you are. <laughs> there, there was a, an interview recently with Brad Pitt where he talked about what watching a movie with David Fincher is like. And he said, it's just Fincher constantly muttering to himself being like, that's the wrong, that's the wrong lighting. Like, no, that's not. No, I shouldn't. No, I shouldn't. They, they, he they, sounds they so exhausting. Early. I know. It's just like I hate you. <laughs> don't ever. I don't ever want to watch a movie with you. That is just again the Fincher thing of like his brain is only thinking about film all the time, and that is really good up to a point. And then maybe there's diminishing returns, or maybe you no longer have can connect to the perspective of people that aren't your brain right that aren't thinking that way and so i think that's that's the danger we've talked about it a lot with, with all directors is like too much of you getting to do what you want and living in your world can make you maybe lose touch with other people i think christopher nolan is another person that we've talked about where it's like sometimes he goes too hard on the nolan things and it's like it'd be nice to hear the dialogue <laughs> like mm-hmm. nobody nobody cares about the like experimental theory behind your sound mix like we're just trying to watch your movie <laughs> like stay tuned for our patreon exclusive episode on tenet coming soon <laughs> uh real quick speaking of patreon exclusive episodes we did once upon a time in hollywood something that i hadn't considered until we were talking about that movie was inglorious bastards if you've never heard of a Nazi, that movie in the first 10 minutes says, these are bad people. And then for the rest of the movie, you're going, okay, those are the bad guys. If you if you had no context and it was just being told a story. Meanwhile, fewer people know about the details of the Manson murders than know about Nazis. What's Point in Time in Hollywood doesn't really give you any of that context. It doesn't say, here's what happened in real life. Now, please enjoy our movie. It just shows you a movie and hopes that you know when it turns and says this is no longer real life, Mank is not that, but there is a sort of ongoing thing that happens in movies where it's, I, I think in a perfect world, a movie is made for the audience who has never seen anything other than this movie that you are showing them. Granted, there is some sense of, okay, people know what X is, or people know what Y is, that that is sort of, that's who your audience is. But it's sort of the Marvel problem, too. Of Like, I hope you've seen 23 right. other movies, <laughs> like, because all these references are... You I know. sure haven't. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's just an interesting thing where a movie is made, as you were saying, Tricia, like, who is the audience, where a movie sort of has to be made. I, I think in a perfect world, a movie is made for an audience who hasn't seen anything else and has nice little tidbits for people who have. That's not always, you know, that's kind of the best of both worlds. It's not easy to do, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of the the sort of meta textual thing that's going on here plays into that where there's some like there's some cinema convention that happens in this movie that makes you wonder, is it being serious or is it tongue in cheek? Mm. So you, you know, mentioned earlier, Brian, with the like rapid fire dialogue that feels like almost screwball comedy, like. Um, you know, his girl Friday kind of thing with the writer's room. But then we get like that sort of snappiness kind of quote unquote in the dialogue all the time. That's a convention. We know that people don't talk like that. So the movie is recreating it for what sort of thematic purpose then as you're watching it becomes the question. Like, are we making, is this satire of a certain time? Is this a love letter to a certain time? As some people have called this movie, which I think is insane. Um, I don't think this is like a pure nostalgia love letter to a thing. But I think, I think that when you're, when you are relying on your audience to have seen some films from the era in question, or at least be familiar with, you know, 
you have to be familiar with some American film history, right? As we discussed, to, to be able to really watch Mank in any sort of meaningful way. Then are you, what is your purpose in like, including these elements that are clearly references and not just the direct homages, but just the conventions of the thing. So like one of the things that I really wasn't sure I should, how I should feel about it is when he writes Citizen Kane and everyone's like, make it's the greatest thing you've ever written. It's your masterpiece. And I'm like, well, that is a convention, right? We see mm -hmm. that in movies about artists where they finally achieve the thing and then everyone tells them it's like the best thing that they've ever done. And then that's sort of like the culmination of their story. That's a convention. Mm -hmm. And this movie does it. Are we making fun of it? Are we treating it utterly seriously? It's a little bit hard to know, I think, tonally. And, and that's, you know, just one example. But I think that is sort of happening throughout here. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. Because I, I do think ultimately, so that specific example that you're talking about of like, it's the greatest thing you've, you're, you've ever written. I do think we are supposed to take that seriously because enough of it is couched within people kind of like begrudgingly admitting that. Like, I think his brother is like the example of that. But I do feel like that's, I had to do mental work to arrive at that conclusion mm -hmm. where I was like, are these people just saying it to him or do they really mean it? eventually I understand, okay, they actually do mean it. If you are afraid of convention and so you don't want to do the thing, but you know that you have to do the thing and so you try to walk some middle ground, I think that can create problems. And I feel like there's probably a certain amount of that in this. I feel like for me, the the quippiness and the humor of Mank throughout and how kind of hard they were leaning on, like he's a jokester, he's all that stuff, really did pay off in the end for me, because that's, you know, his story is this kind of tragic, sad story. And, and I think that's that reveal was maybe the most it's, it's not even like a reveal necessarily, but that arc of him feeling like he's the smartest guy in the room and always has a joke for this thing. And like he's he knows better than all these other people. And then by the end, you know, it's like Hearst only had you as the court jester, like you're a sad, broken person. You talk a lot of talk but you've never really done anything like all those things i think really hit me and watching it again i feel like it made sense why there was so much of that like jokey snappy quippy thing because that was kind of like his shtick and the reason he had access to hearst and then when that's revealed later it's not like yeah we only keep you around because you're funny mm -hmm. i feel like that hit me pretty hard and just was an interesting arc of a character that i feel like i, I hadn't haven't seen that story in a long time of, of this kind of sad artist realizing that they're sad and then having to do something about it and kind of killing themselves in the process. And I fundamentally agree. So by the end of this, I think I came to the conclusion that this is about a, a gambler and a jokester who doesn't treat anything like the stakes are real and especially not his job, especially not Hollywood at all. And then comes to realize that the stakes, at least of his job and working in the movie business, those stakes are real. The movie achieves that by tying the movie business to political realities of the time. When the movie starts to make those, draw those connections together, I'm fully with you, which I, which going back to kind of what I was saying earlier about like the first half of the movie, there's a bunch of extra stuff in it. But that's maybe possibly the point where 
nothing is serious and none of it really matters and you're invited to not take it seriously until it actually does sort of start to get real in the way that Mank starts to realize, well, this whole thing is sort of like a joke in a circus to me. And then, you know, as the the gubernatorial race with Upton Sinclair goes south and his friend, you know, um, takes his own life. And, you know, as it goes on further and further, Mank realizes too late in his life that he's been essentially, yeah, gambling and treating like none of it like it's real or material or, or really means anything. And he kind of comes to realize that it does, which ultimately is, you know, the request for credit yeah. is sort of like the, mm-hmm. the, the payoff of that. So. I'm I'm absolutely with you. That being said, I don't know if it all quite congeals if you take sort of the lightheartedness of some of the other like cinematic conventions that are going on that are still at play. So I don't know. There's the there there is this like irreverence and playfulness to so much of the movie that I'm not quite sure that it ultimately like drills down into that theme in a super clear way. Yeah, Mm. exactly. I mean, I think it's clear that this is not a a perfect movie. And I feel like there is a little bit of, you know, maybe I think indulgence is probably an okay word to use. I think so. Brian, you bringing up Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I think there are probably a lot of comparisons to be made between that and this. And it's just that I'm tuned to the Fincher wavelength more than the tarantino wavelength but i think there are some similarities there well because one of them made a good movie and one of them (laughs) (laughs) there it is (laughs) well i mean because i think i think the difference for me with those movies is this story felt like it's really about something you know like it Mm -hmm. ultimately like you were pointing it out trisha i think your your interpretation of the theme is right on that's how i interpret it as well which is a man realizing that this megaphone that this industry has is really powerful and is not something to be played with lightly. And you know, he, his essentially like joke to Irving, like maybe causes this outcome in the gubernatorial race. Right. Exactly. Without him even meaning, you know, so his irreverence like may have caused like a political downfall. And his friend's suicide. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the consequences are really quite serious. So yeah, I think, I think where this movie ended up, really pulling me in and it it really had me by the end it was because it was about something bigger than itself it wasn't about kind of just pure nostalgia pure fun rock and roll goofy hollywood stuff it was about something deeper than that and the the stakes were real and the emotions were real It, it it didn't i wasn't removed the way i felt in once upon a time in hollywood so i'm also on the fincher train here yeah and and i feel like just because i want to mention it i i think the performances of everyone in this movie are really, really mm-hmm. great. Like I think Fincher films usually have good performances, but I, I was struck by again going back to how much life there was in this, that there was life and fun happening in the there performances. Was charm. Like it was charming. Right. Which is not usually a Fincher thing. Right. <laughs> and and it's hard to do on take sixty. Like right. that's that's I was watching like Amanda Seyfried and I was like, wow. You are on in every shot, and I know that is hard. That that yeah. is requiring a lot of energy right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Th- this was the first time I've seen her like disappear into a role. Mm-hmm. Um, where where I, I feel like she's one of those people where I've never disliked her in anything, but it's just sort of always been like, okay, she's she's here and she's doing her thing where she is playing roughly the same character, not like Mean Girls, but that's you know, 
Uh, <laughs> it's a cartoony by design performance. That is an incredible performance. Don't you dare knock it. Absolutely. She's an I, amazing we do Karen. need to talk about Mean Girls at some point. <laughs> but I also think she's had maybe a lot of roles over the past decade that have just been like, you're a person, you know, and so I haven't like seen her get to like really stretch. And uh, and I was just pretty blown away by her in this yeah. uh, in terms of just how how well she encapsulated this this figure, this type of figure from the era. It's hard to do a movie like this without being Catherine Hepburn or Edward G. Robinson or Humphrey Bogart and trying to be like, well, we're in this kind of movie, so we got to do this way. You know, <laughs> funnily enough, Gary Oldman is always like like 10% too much in all of his movies. And like, that's kind of perfect for Mank because he, it's like sort of like a glimmer. It's like understated, but also with like glimmer of we're going a little over the top. Yeah. I mean, I was just so happy to see Marion Davies offered a little bit of redemption in this movie because mm. she's mm-hmm. so... The story of Citizen Kane, the movie, and and everything about it, and and William Randolph Hearst and her career, just like nobody got trashed or forgotten more than Marion Davies in mm. all of that. And Amanda Seyfried, the character is written really well, but Amanda Seyfried's performance is also so fun here, and and just like she's really witty and smart and genuine the whole thing genuine but the whole thing about the way that the character you know who in this movie mank keeps insisting <laughs> that <laughs> susan alexander kane is not marion davies but it nonetheless trashed marion davies reputation the movie citizen kane absolutely trashed her reputation the thing that's interesting about susan alexander kane in citizen kane which i just you know rewatched the same way that you guys did is just how unlikable and how grating and how difficult of a character she is. Mm. And mm-hmm. it's it's so nasty. The movie is so nasty to her as a character. And it's not fair either to Marion Davies that that's how she ends up being represented because Marion Davies was not a bad actress. Like, she just was miscast in everything that they tried to put her in, you know? Mm. Like, and Mank kind of reminds us of that or tries to mm-hmm. tries to basically correct the record on that. It was like she would have been a great like comedian and, and she was a fun actress and like was witty and, and you know, had this um, liveliness to her. And then they kept trying to put her in Joan of Arc, you know, or whatever, like Marie Antoinette. And, yeah. and it was a it was a problem of the way that she was being perceived and like the kind of roles that she was being shoved into. And Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> The casting here is dead on because mm. she is so lively and witty and fun to watch. And as you're talking about, hasn't been given a lot of opportunities in her career to like really shine. And um, it just it's lovely. I she wins this movie. I miss her every yeah. second. She wasn't on screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of her scenes with Mank were just so delightful. Yeah. The nice thing about the pacing in this movie is it was so quickly paced. But then when it did slow down, it was usually with her. So yes. it's like, I'm like, okay, I get to watch Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried like be awesome for, I don't care if the scene is 10 minutes. Like I'm, I'm happy to just hang out here. I do have one suspicion casting wise. So Maurice LaMarche is the voice of the brain from Pinky and the Brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he famously is, does a lot of Orson Welles impressions. He, he based the brain on Orson Welles and he does a lot of, right. he's like yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like um, the Orson Welles guy. And I'm watching this movie and every time Tom Burke is on the mm-hmm. phone and you're only hearing and he's not on screen. I was like, that sounds like Maurice LaMarche. And then it would cut back to Tom Burke and I'm like, that doesn't sound like Maurice LaMarche. 
So then I go on Maurice LaMarche's Twitter and someone shared that they had him read all of the dialogue, all, mm. all of Wells's dialogue for this movie to give Tom Burke something to go off of. Really? Wow. wow. Yeah. And I highly suspect that some of that actually made it into <laughs> <laughs> when Tom Burke is on screen. Nothing against his performance, but I was like, there's these subtle differences where I was like, I think it might be him. Or I could see Fincher like, you know, meticulously replacing certain words that right. Tom Burke didn't do quite to his liking. <laughs> right. Syllables. Yeah, yeah. yeah. syllables. Yeah. 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 Really quickly, I, I uh, shouted out the souvenir. Probably, I don't know what, what episode. Mm, it was my, what yeah. am I watching from like months ago? But that's a Tom Burke movie. And that was like the first movie that I saw him in. He's fantastic. He's that horrible it. guy in it. Oh, yeah. yes. That's why I recognize him. <laughs> Which if you haven't seen, yeah, the souvenir was a great movie. I, I think it was from 2019, but uh, yeah. It, it's a great Tom Burke role. He's fabulous in it. I, I really like it. And I really like him in this too. I've never hated a character more and he was fantastic at it mm -hmm. in that movie. <laughs> his his entrance in Mank uh, at the, it's a kind of a second entrance, but in when Mank's in the hospital and just his silhouette with like the cape or whatever is. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. Of, I mean, the way his face <laughs> comes so into dramatic. frame with the lighting. It's just like, this is so wonderfully iconic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is, yeah, there's like a whole conversation that could be had about like the casting and the way Fincher casts things because there are, are like random people that show up like Justin Timberlake where it's like I just need a rock star person why don't we just cast a rock star right right and that's there's like these weird kind of meta things that like some or like let's get Bill Nye where yeah, it's like, right. who would ever think Bill Nye but it's strangely perfect because like, or Neil Patrick Harris or Dwight Yoakam or Meatloaf like I, I mentioned this before <laughs> yeah. on the show every pot and every Fincher movie has that one actor who you're like you what do you did you, were you visiting for the day and they gave you a role? <laughs> now just here you are. Yeah. But it is interesting that there isn't more of Orson Welles in this. And I think that that's mm -hmm. what a lot of people, like when you come away from it, you're kind of like, wow, I thought that was going to be about Orson Welles. And it just really is not, which, you know, I think Tom Burke is great in it. And I think that there's potentially a really interesting movie about Mank and Orson Welles and their relationship and the actual making of Citizen Kane. But that has kind of been talked about a lot. Sure. I mean, not not Mank, not as much. Orson Welles a lot, mm, a lot, right. a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you read that the first draft of this by Jack Fincher was very specifically sort of about that, mm. where it was sort of about like, who wrote Citizen Kane? Was right. it Orson Welles? Was it David Fincher? Or no. <laughs> I'm like looking at the wrong thing on my notes. Was it Orson Welles? David Fincher wrote Citizen Kane. <laughs> the, so, somehow that like emotionally made sense into that question. Right. Yeah. It came from my soul. Yeah. <laughs> That's the question really being asked by this film. Right. Yeah. I mean, but you would that's kind of what I was expecting this to be about, right? And it certainly barely concerns itself with that it really is about why did mank like right. assume mank wrote citizen kane just mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the assumption which is a very widely debated assumption in cinema history but if you're going with that assumption then why did mank write Citizen? what i do think if yeah the movie doesn't really make it a debate it doesn't really show Not two sides but i think the omission of wells from a lot of the movie is essentially making its point which is his absence Definitely. from the entire process, the writing process, you know? So I think his absence feels intentional in that way. If like, this was not a co-writing endeavor. This was a, he handed over to Wells to maybe cut some stuff out, but this 
story came from Mank and came from Mank's experiences. It's definitely it's a long whole thing that we can get into, and there are apparently many drafts, and it seems like Mank probably did those drafts, but after that, a lot of other stuff happened, mm, so yeah. we don't want to get mired in that. But yeah, this this is just focusing on Mank, obviously, and, and I think that's why watching it a second time with the expectations calibrated helped me get into mm. it also. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Mank. Alex, want to start us off? Sure. And my lesson is kind of a, a thing I would have done differently personally, because I think a, a, a solve for me in this movie, I think a lot of the, I can't quite follow what they're saying, Hollywood minutia of the first third to a half of the movie would have been less of a problem for me if we had had, I hate to say it, more of like a save the cat moment early on, uh, <laughs> yeah, our favorite book. Uh, but if but if we if I understood some of the, I, I understand how the movie is constructed to kind of reveal depth as the film goes on and reveal higher stakes for me as it goes on as we've discussed so i i think the movie is exactly what it intends to be mm-hmm. i would have been able to click into it faster if i understood more about mank earlier and and beyond the snappy fast-talking alcoholic jokester um and i think you know that was a lesson to me of like if you want to make a film that is going to have a lot of minutia for the nerds. Uh, you got to give everybody else who's not going to follow the minutia or even care about the minutia a deeper protagonist like character thing to latch onto earlier in the film to like care to really want to go on the ride because I didn't really know what I'm supposed to care about for a while. And so I think that was that's my lesson is I think you can do this and, and make a nerd film movie but if you want to reach other people and and not have them change their netflix to another option it's helpful for me to get some sense of the political issue that he cares about earlier and how that's conflicting with mgm you know before like you know 40 minutes into the movie and so that's that would be my change and my lesson is put that stuff early on so that even if we don't care about this conversation we want to know what's going to happen with this question that's being raised by the protagonist. Well, and this is actually almost exactly my lesson to Alex, which is, yeah, something I probably would have done differently is to put Hearst in it earlier and just Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. more of him. I think that there's a really potentially interesting development of that relationship before it starts to go south where, Mm -hmm. you know, Mank finds himself drawn into Hearst's orbit and in some ways starts to really admire him. And and then like, you know, as the consequences of Hearst's political sort of chess game catch up with Mank and the things that he does care about, then there's that turn where he decides to write the movie because the movie also spends no time on this question, but like, or on this part of the process, but Orson Welles basically approached Mank and was like, you can write whatever you want. And it was Mank that picked this story and i probably would have created that like more of a through line 
um, to sort of, yeah, again, help the viewers and give the give the story a little bit more focus. And I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying that like that was something that, you know, once we got to that, I'm with you. The scene where obviously what's probably the most famous scene in it or will be, you know, once more people see it is the long drunken tirade uh, yeah. in the dinner where Mank is telling the story of like the Don Quixote thing that he's going to write, quote unquote. Yeah, his pitch, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. His pitch for Citizen Kane, essentially. And if we had gotten invested in the relationship between Hearst and Mank, and then, you know, Hearst in real life, this is not made really very clear in the movie. Hearst used to put seat Mank right next to him at that same dinner table during those long same dinner parties because he was so entertained by the way that Mank talked and like, you know, that they they say a lot about Mank being the court jester to Hearst's king. What if that relationship had been there in the movie? Right. Even one time. <laughs> you have a scene early on where Mank does like this like crazy monologue and everyone's like clapping and it's hilarious. And then when he does it again, Hearst starts to realize he's talking about him and you're like, oh, snap. That's what's going on here. Yeah. That's what I would have done. Maybe that makes me a less inventive screenwriter than <laughs> jack fincher or david fincher i don't i don't know i yeah i think that or or a happy medium you know i think it would help audiences orient themselves a little bit in this one well, that you know mank never seems mank never likes hearst also so like that there doesn't right. feel like there is he has an emotional investment right in that relationship either and so i think maybe that could have been turned up a little bit more so that when it's in jeopardy there's more of a concern happening. Right. Like if, if we saw Mank enjoying being the court jester for a little while before politics are raised, before he starts to be irked by all these, you know, wealthy, well-connected men plotting, you know, to choose FDR's cabinet and take down the socialist gubernatorial candidate. If, if we saw him just enjoying being Mank for a while in the Hearst orbit, mm -hmm. there would be more of that arc. But the first time we see him at a Hearst party, he's already kind of being contrarian and exactly politi politically combative with the, the rich men. Yeah. Yeah. My lesson is also about orienting yourself, but with something that the movie does well, I think, mm. uh, which is location where mm. I, I found myself when the slug lines would come on screen and say, this is what year it was and stuff. I, I didn't even process it, which is hard because that's the thing that the movie is trying to use to say, here's where we are now. But what I did find myself processing very quickly was where are we physically and what does that mean? Mm. Very simply, if Mike is laying in a bed in the middle of nowhere, we are in the present clearly like everything else is a flashback. This is the sort of present day of this movie is we're in Victorville, we're laying in bed, that's the present. And nothing will happen in this scene, so you don't <laughs> sure. need to worry about it. <laughs> sure. There were some good scenes with the oh, nurse and the, yeah, the dictation. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then I I think everything else in the flashback, I can't even remember if everything else was is, is linear in terms of, or, or chronological, I should say. But again, it didn't quite matter because to me it was just, we're either in Victorville or we're at Hearst Castle or we're in Hollywood. And I kind of almost in, in this nonlinear storytelling, I almost didn't care when we were because where we were made me feel oriented. Right. And I think that was mm -hmm. that was something the movie did really well where I was like, I don't I, I'm not like trying to do a lot of 
thought work to try to figure out if this scene happened before that other scene. I'm just like, oh, we're at Hearst Castle. Cool. We're in like Hollywood at someone's studio. Cool. And I think that was just a really neat thing that this sort of set the movie in three different places where even if you're going to play around with with time, you can always orient yourself in a location. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to go with a, a kind of technical lesson, which is just like I could watch Fincher cut between close-ups of people for forever. Mm. And that that first Hearst dinner scene, I think is, I think Fincher's very good at blocking scenes to have physical actions helping with emotional turns. Like I'm thinking also- Sorry to clarify, you're talking about when they're actually having, it's drinks, right? They're not at the dinner drinks. table. They're right. like right. in Sorry. that like, like cocktail lounge, lounge area. Okay, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Just the blocking of that scene is just, it makes people sitting in a room talking feels so cinematic and mm. that there's so much you're you're tracking the subtext of things so well because of when they cut to this person or that person or the medium shot or the wide shot and that's honestly the most like my favorite Fincher filmmaking it isn't really the showy stuff is when it's people in rooms talking and he just knows who to show when and which performance is going to give the right little bit of like subtext or spin on the thing and you know trying to figure out just like where do you place the camera and like the 180 degree rule when there's like 18 different people talking to each other and like this person seated behind that person so when do you get the angle that's from this person's like just all of that juggling is like thrilling to me i just nerd out about all of that and this movie has several scenes that are just very very well choreographed to uh, yeah, engage you visually and give you all that extra detail while you're watching. So yeah, just just from a, you know from an editor perspective, it's like those scenes as a viewer may seem very simple, but those are like the hardest scenes to cut because yeah, if you've shot every actor in this kind of complex setup in this cocktail lounge, uh, all some of them facing different directions, uh, sitting in different chairs in different places. How the hell do you cut this together in a way that's not totally disorienting and totally confusing and spatially muddled? And it's just effortless when you watch the film. And that's not that takes a lot of effort to make it feel effortless. So it's right. very, very impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching? Trisha, what have you been watching? I think I maybe have mentioned to you guys before, maybe when we were talking about Coraline, but there's this Disney Plus show called Prop Culture where the host who's a collector named Dan Lanigan hunts down all of these props from Disney movies and like interviews cool people that were involved in the making of the movies. And it's just, you know, it's like a half an hour long show. I think there's only eight episodes right now or something. It was released in May of this year of 2020. And it just is really touching to see people from movies that you really cared about uh, or meant a lot to you when you were young. So there's episodes on Mary Poppins, Nightmare Before Christmas, Tron, um, and <laughs> like a lot like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like the Muppet mm. movie. He goes and he finds props that have like long been lost. They're languishing in warehouses or, you know, people's garages half the time, like filmmakers, garages, production designers, costume designers that just have these things. And he revisits these objects that are beautiful and meaningful and were, you know, crafted with care. And he talks to some of those behind the scenes people. Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean is another great episode that they did. They did Curse of the Black Pearl, which is cool. Nice. Anyway, 
it's just it's on your Disney Plus. It's a lovely watch. Um, and the all the props from the Muppet movie. Uh, really, I don't know. They they have like Kermit's banjo and stuff. Nice. And, <laughs> yeah, they talked to actually to Dave Goals. Um, who does the voice of Gonzo among other characters. Mm-hmm. And he like does a bit where as Gonzo, like Dan Lanigan interviews Gonzo. And he's like, tell me about this prop that you wore in, in the Muppet movie. And Gonzo's like, oh, I haven't seen this in a long time. <laughs> I can't do a Gonzo voice, Brian. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a great show. Does he need to come over to my neighbor's house who has the beast from the Sandlot? For sure. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. as in the original full size beast, like the one they used, is in his freaking loft. That's <laughs> it's really cool, terrifying, and awesome. He visited these this guy who has, I think, nearly all of the props and costumes from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia: Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like, okay. there's just a guy like in <laughs> Cleveland or somewhere that has them all in his house. It's wild. Wow. <laughs> of all of all movies, that was the one he needed them all. I guess. I guess so. But he's got like. T- uh, he's got like Tilda Swinton's whole like, you know, ice dress and crown and things. It's it's cool. I thought the same thing you thought, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> he he has he has Tilda Swinton like the full life size <laughs> model. <laughs> Clearly, she's not a human being. So you know, <laughs> you're right. It's the animatronic. Uh, awesome. Okay, cool. Brian, what about you? So I just finished watching the new season of Fargo which mm. is a show oh, I've really yes. been enjoying. Uh, it's by yeah. Noah Hawley. And every season is just Coen Brothers fan fiction in a really weird way. <laughs> it's it's like the first season feels like it's supposed to be sort of set in the world of the movie. And then every season sort of finds its own voice. But then there are tons of very clear callbacks to Coen Brothers movies, like mm. entire lines or exchanges or shots that are taken from all these different movies and it's like each season sort of picks two or three movies to focus on that being what this season Hmm. is in kind of a cool way but it's all it's an anthology show but set in the same universe so Mm. the marge gunderson analog in the first season is a like eight-year-old in the second season and her dad is the is the main is one of the main characters that kind of thing Mm. so it's all sort of like talking to each other but you can watch any season by itself this season is set in 1950 kansas city and it's sort of these two warring mafia families and i was a little disoriented the first few episodes because i was like this doesn't feel like fargo like fargo Hmm. to me is sort of bumbling idiots who accidentally end up in crime and this was like this is crime like these are crime it's almost more miller's crossing than fargo Mm -hmm. but then once i got into the season then I got way into it and it like really found its voice and I and I really started enjoying it. One of the families, the the head of the family is Chris Rock, who okay. suddenly decided to be an actor. Like I, I've seen him in things and just always thought he's like, I've got a big smile on my face and I'm just like <laughs> saying lines in a funny way because I'm Chris Rock. And he completely nails this performance. He has to like be emotional and he has to be scary and he totally knocks it out of the park. Wow. The other family, uh, one of the the main characters in that family is Jason Schwartzman, who I'm just like, how has Jason Schwartzman (laughs) not been? It's he's like the Coen Brothers cast member who's never been in a Coen Brothers thing, you know? Interesting. Um, Who he's sort of it's like the Italian Godfather type family, which is weird because he's like part of the Coppola family. I was gonna say, (laughs) but he's he's doing it sort of in this Schwartzman way, where it's 
comedic, but then he sometimes not. And it's sort of all over the place. Timothy Oliphant's in it because what is he not in these days? You know, he's just all over the place. I don't have a problem with it. It's great. Sure. <laughs> and then the thing that even sold it even harder for me was Jesse Buckley, who is tied maybe with Florence Pugh right now as my favorite actor, who is just like mm-hmm. so freaking exciting and everything I see her. And she mm. was in in two years or I guess three years. I mentioned the movie Wild Rose, where she plays this like Scottish woman who's like kind of a drunk and whatever. And she wants to be a country singer, which already in and of itself is like multiple roles in one. Then in Chernobyl, she was the the, the pregnant yeah, woman. She's fantastic. Yeah. In Judy, the Judy Garland movie, she's like this very proper British woman. She's like kind of Judy's like a agent or manager, one of those things, a handler, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of ending things. She is kind of like an American hipstery person, like just kind of a normal person. And then in Fargo, she's this like crazy Midwestern nurse who, you know, is really sweet until you realize that she's totally crazy and psychotic and might kill you and (laughs) she is just so watchable and so exciting and one more thing they did a black and white episode that feels very film noir and all this kind of stuff and it was a really cool episode and then i'm watching mank and i'm like this feels like that fargo episode eric messerschmidt who shot mank shot fargo also so i was like oh okay i I noticed a cinematographer thing i don't usually do that Awesome, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've I've loved every season of Fargo so far, so I'm excited to see now now it's all done. Yeah, if you've seen other seasons of Fargo, turn off your Fargo brain when you start watching this one because you might be a little like, wait, but it's not Fargo because it's just its own thing. Mm. Yeah, cool. Uh, Alex, what about you? I've been casually checking out Alien Worlds on Netflix, uh, which is, it's almost like a Discovery Channel kind of show, but with a huge budget to do crazy CGI renderings of like, potential alien life on like hypothetical worlds so okay it's basically like a science show where half of it is like really well done cgi kind of like nature cinematography of like here's a planet with insane gravity and the air is so thick it's like water you swim through what kind of animals could live on that planet and how would they like adapt and survive and then it would and then it cuts back to earth to explore habitats on earth where animals have figured out how to how to survive in really extreme conditions it's both kind of like a nature science show about earth biology and adaptation and evolution and then this like kind of fun fantasy design fiction what if uh we found a planet that was an exoplanet that had these conditions what kind of life could we expect to find there hang on hang on hang on hang on I made a joke generator of what Alex is watching. And I, <laughs> was that one of them? I mean, I, this sounds like you just went and clicked on it and you're just riffing off of what it spat out. Yeah. Yeah, the show isn't real. Okay. I just I just went on a riff with one of those generator things. Yeah. Alex just improvises yeah. Yeah. my show every episode. Anyway, yeah, it, it's just it's kind of just a fun, pretty thing to look at. And there's some cool science and it just all looks really great. So. Check it out. Nice. 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 Michael. So I'm going to recommend a two-part YouTube video series by creator Maggie Mayfish. I've talked about this on Twitter. She's awesome. I've kind of just recently discovered her and watched. uh, She has a two-part series on Zack Snyder and Mm. deconstructing his filmmaking and the philosophy that comes through and the choices that he makes and it, it is a very cathartic. I was watch. about to say this sounds extremely cathartic. Yeah, Alex, yeah. you will love it. Uh, it's <laughs> it's 
It's great. Uh, <laughs> I yeah really thoroughly enjoyed both parts, and it's the right combination of just like really smart analysis and drawing of conclusions presented in a fun way that again is just is cathartic for those of us who have been perhaps frustrated that Zack Snyder has perhaps. been celebrated as a visionary director um, <laughs> for so long. Anyway, so it's really really great. Um, I think it's it's a a fair deconstruction of all of that and it's um enjoyable so i'll put the link to that to her channel and those videos in the show notes check it out it's really awesome nice well this has been our conversation about mank i feel like this has kind of been like a almost like a hot takes feel where it's <laughs> yeah. like we just right. watched it and like we're Brand kind of still movie. trying to like yeah figure out all the things i'm curious to see how the film will age and if it'll kind of become like toward the zodiac side of things where at first i was like i don't like zodiac this is weird and now i'm like it's as best movie maybe mm. so i'm curious to see what what time does with with mank but until then beyond the screenplay is produced by vince major our editor is eric schneider i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Hayeros. i am michael tucker you can find all of our twitter handles in these show notes please reach out and say hi we always love hearing from you and i want to hear what you guys thought of mank if you maybe didn't have the same context that we had as film nerds, what did you think? Did you need more? Did you need less? Let us know on Twitter. And of course, you can always join Patreon, which lets you join our Discord, where you can literally talk to us about it. And we'd love to have conversations about mm -hmm. it there. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. As we mentioned earlier, there's going to be a patron-exclusive episode on Tenet this month, which is going to be delightful i'm looking forward to that <laughs> so yes thank you to the patrons thank you everyone for listening and we will see you in the next episode bye everybody bye schnitz bye <laughs> <laughs>